Jane Austen's Emma, Volume 2, Part 2, Chapters 4 through 6. Chapter 4 is a very short chapter almost entirely devoted to the news of Mr. Elton's engagement. It begins with one of those wonderful Jane Austen opening lines. Human nature is so well disposed towards those who are in interesting situations that a young person who either marries or dies is sure of being kindly spoken of. We learn in this chapter that everyone in Highbury is talking about Mr. Elton's engagement to Miss Augusta Hawkins. Quote, Mr. Elton returned a very happy man. He had gone away rejected and mortified, disappointed in a very sanguine hope, after a series of what appeared to him strong encouragement. And not only losing the right lady, but finding himself debased to the level of a very wrong one. He had gone away deeply offended. He came back engaged to another, and to another as superior, of course, to the first, as under such circumstances what is gained always is to what is lost. He came back gay and self-satisfied, eager and busy, caring nothing for Miss Woodhouse and defying Miss Smith. The Charming Augusta Hawkins in addition to all the usual advantages of perfect beauty and merit, was in possession of an independent fortune of so many thousands as would always be called ten. A point of some dignity as well as some convenience. The story told well. He had not thrown himself away. He had gained a woman of ten thousand pounds or thereabouts, and he had gained her with such delightful rapidity. The first hour of introduction had been so very soon followed by distinguishing notice, the history which he had to give Mrs. Cole of the rise and progress of the affair was so glorious. End quote. Mr. Elton has returned in triumph after only four weeks. The wedding will be taking place in the very near future, and there is much discussion of Miss Hawkins. No one knows who she is. Here are Emma's thoughts in the free, indirect style. Quote, what she was must be uncertain, but who she was might be found out. And setting aside the 10,000 pounds, it did not appear that she was at all Harriet's superior. She brought no name, no blood, no alliance. Miss Hawkins was the youngest of the two daughters of a Bristol merchant, of course, he must be called, but as the whole of the profits of his mercantile life appeared so very moderate, it was not unfair to guess the dignity of his line of trade had been very moderate also. Part of every winter she had been used to spend in Bath, but Bristol was her home, the very heart of Bristol. For though the father and mother had died some years ago and uncle remained in the law line, nothing more distinctly honorable was hazarded of him than that he was in the law line, and with him the daughter had lived. Emma guessed him to be the drudge of some attorney and too stupid to rise, and all the grandeur of the connection seemed dependent on the elder sister, who was very well married, to a gentleman in a great way, near Bristol, who kept two carriages. That was the wind-up of the history. That was the glory 
of Miss Hawkins, end quote. A few comments here. Miss Hawkins was the youngest of the two daughters of a Bristol, there's a dash in the text, merchant, of course, he must be called. We know from previous podcasts that being in trade may bring someone money, but it does not bring respectability in Austin's time. Apparently, the Hawkins family does not have any pride of blood. The text says that she brought no name, no blood, no alliance. The other point that we must consider goes beyond the fact that the money that is the source of the Hawkins family fortune was obtained through trade. Bristol was an important seaport, but was well known for being a center of the slave trade, and the slave trade had finally been outlawed in 1807 by Act of Parliament. It is commonly believed by most Austin critics that the references to Bristol in connection with the Hawkins family wealth means it is doubly tainted. It not only came from trade, but it may well have come from the trade in human flesh. There is nothing definitive on this subject but the reaction of Emma to this piece of information, the curiously hesitating way that the narrator imparts it, the youngest of the two daughters of a Bristol merchant, of course, he must be called, and the comment a few lines later that Bristol was her home, the very heart of Bristol, and Miss Hawkins's defensiveness on the subject that we will see in a later dialogue are all highly suggestive. So this is the future Mrs. Elton. In Chapter 5, we have the long-awaited visit of Frank Churchill. He arrives at last, and the narrator tells us, The Frank Churchill so long talked of, so high in interest, was actually before her. He was presented to her, and she did not think too much had been said in his praise. He was a very good-looking man. Height, air, address, all were unexceptionable, and his countenance had a great deal of the spirit and liveliness of his father's. He looked quick and sensible. She felt immediately that she should like him, and there was a well-bred ease of manner, and a readiness to talk which convinced her that he came intending to be acquainted with her, and that acquainted they soon must be. End quote. Emma's initial impression of Frank is very favorable, and the two have their first conversation. In this brief chapter, we do not see too much of Mr. Churchill, but we do learn that he is somewhat acquainted with a lady residing in or near Highbury, a family of the name of Fairfax, as he puts it. This confirms what Emma has previously heard from Jane Fairfax, that the two had known each other at Weymouth. All that Emma will venture to say on the subject is, I have heard her speak of the acquaintance. She is a very elegant young woman. Chapter 6 gives us the first substantive conversation between Emma and Frank Churchill when he returns for a second visit. I'm going to be focusing on the different ways that Emma and Frank talk and his conduct toward her over the course of the novel. Frank tells Emma that Jane looks ill because Emma had asked him, and this is in front of Mrs. Weston, and how did you think Miss Fairfax looking, to which he replies, ill, very ill, that is, if a young lady can ever be allowed to look ill. But the expression is hardly admissible, Mrs. Weston, is it? 
ladies can never look ill. And seriously, Miss Fairfax is naturally so pale as almost always to give the appearance of ill health a most deplorable want of complexion. Emma would not agree to this and began a warm defense of Miss Fairfax's complexion, end quote. So once again, we see Emma taking the other side in a debate, even though she is not particularly fond of Jane. But she doesn't like what Frank has said about Jane's lack of complexion, her paleness. The two jest about this point as Emma, Frank, and Mrs. Weston are walking through Highbury. Emma says, well, there is no disputing about taste. At least you admire her, accept her complexion. He shook his head and laughed. I cannot separate Miss Fairfax and her complexion. Emma now asks Frank about how often he saw Jane in Weymouth, but at this point they arrive at a shop and he wants to buy some gloves, so this line of questioning is interrupted. Emma asks if Frank is aware of Miss Fairfax's situation in life and what she is destined to be. Mrs. Weston decides that is a rather delicate subject and that it's not appropriate for them to be discussing it. Note that this is only the second time that Emma has met Frank Churchill, and this is the first real conversation of any substance that she has had with him, and he has managed to get her to speak very freely about her feelings toward Jane Fairfax in the following conversation, beginning when he says to Emma, but you, who have known Miss Fairfax from a child, must be a better judge of her character and of how she is likely to conduct herself in critical situations than I can be. I have known her from a child, undoubtedly. We have been children and women together, and it is natural to suppose that we should be intimate, that we should have taken to each other whenever she visited her friends, but we never did. I hardly know how it has happened, a little perhaps from that wickedness on my side which was prone to take disgust toward a girl so idolized and so cried up as she always was by her aunt and grandmother and all their set, and then her reserve. I never could attach myself to anyone so completely reserved." It is a most repulsive quality indeed, said he, oftentimes very convenient, no doubt, but never pleasing. There is safety in reserve, but no attraction. One cannot love a reserved person. Not till the reserve ceases toward oneself, and then the attraction may be the greater. Intimacy between Miss Fairfax and me is quite out of the question. I have no reason to think ill of her, not the least except that such extreme and perpetual cautiousness of word and manner, such a dread of giving a distinct idea about anybody, is apt to suggest suspicions of there being something to conceal. He perfectly agreed with her. Emma here has somewhat forgotten herself in revealing so much about her complicated inner feelings to Frank, who is nearly a perfect stranger. As we know, Emma is very conflicted about Jane and often feels guilty about her feelings of dislike of Jane, which Emma tries to suppress. Yet she has just revealed much of this to Frank. <laughs> 